All right, today we'll continue with the next two minor prophets. Remember why they're called minor prophets? Anyone? Okay, smaller, shorter in length uh, than the larger one, not not of less importance. Um, And uh, they cover the last 12 of the prophets, last 12 books of the Old Testament are the minor prophets. And today we're going to look at Amos and Obadiah. And each of the prophets, whether major or minor, what you're going to find is a a note about the people's sin, whether Israel or Judah, and then a pronouncement of judgment, and then a message of mercy or, or an opportunity for hope there. Um, and so if you, if you read through these and just remember those kind of three hooks of sin, judgment, and, and mercy, um, you'll kind of see how, how God is trying to get his point across to them. It will help you, uh, help you see uh, often how God works with us as well. Let's begin with the word of prayer and and uh, we'll get started. Father, thankful for Christ and that He is our safe refuge that we can run to and and um, find Him to be our rock and our foundation. And uh, Lord, we often are setting up all kinds of um, props and um, crutches that we lean on in order to uh, to get through life, and yet. Um, sometimes through tragedy or just through um, us seeing in your word you you remove those kinds of props so that all we have to stand on is you and all we have to stand on is the sure foundation of Jesus Christ our Savior and so we find him to be secure and there's nothing else that we do need in the storms of life we we fix our hope in him and and even in the good times as well we we are confident that he is our deliverer, our Savior, and that he will be with us all the way. May you um, teach us this morning from your word. We, we want to be encouraged by it. We want to be challenged. Refine us in our thinking, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start in Amos 1.1. It reads, The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, when he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So Amos is from the south, Tekoa, there you see in verse 1, but he's preaching to the north. He's preaching to Israel, and um, he's concerned about them. And you can see there that he's doing it during the time of Uzziah, while Uzziah was reigning as king in Judah, and Jeroboam II was reigning as king in the northern tribe of Israel. And so this puts the writing somewhere around 760 B.C., only a few decades before the fall of the north, which happens in uh, 722 B.C. And this was a time for Israel of great prosperity, expansion, security for both kingdoms. Um, Amos prophesied about 20 years before Isaiah. And Amos prophesies during the time after the kingdom has been divided, but before the Assyrian um, threat. So both north and south are standing, but but they're standing confidently in themselves rather than in God, which is why Amos comes to speak to them. And his point to them is that um, God will bring judgment on those who thoughtlessly practice empty rituals. And the implied uh, the implied blessing there is that if, if if you turn from those empty rituals, if you turn from those false gods, then God will be merciful. And so this will be a theme that we'll see in many of the prophets that God is angry because of their sins and yet He calls them to uh, repentance. 
His own people are acting corruptly. You know, the, the nature of Israel and Judah is they're often looking at their, their neighbors, their wicked pagan na- neighbors and all their sins. And so in comparison to their sin, they feel pretty good about themselves. Um, but, but God's saying, listen, this is about you. Uh, you have despised me. You have turned from me. So God's going to come in judgment, particularly with this earthquake that you see there at the end of verse 1. Some kind of earthquake comes and, and um, wakes them up to some degree. At least that's what the intention was. Well, in chapters 1 through 4, we see the judgment upon all nations of the earth. So the focus is on, on the surrounding nations and what God is doing craftily through the prophet Amos is bringing the focus down into Israel. So look at verse 3. There's a tension there in Damascus. And then verse 6, there's a tension on Gaza. Verse 9, there's a tension towards Tyre and their sin and judgment that's coming. Edom, verse, uh, verse 11. Then Am- Ammon, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 1, you have Moab. And so these are the Gentile nations of Amos' day. And, and there's all sorts of prophecies about destructions. We're not going to read all of them, but, but all the destructions about their sin. And so Amos is kind of amening through all of this. The, all this uh, talk of judgment on these nations. Yes, their sin is terrible. We agree with you. They do need to be judged until Amos starts to turn towards Israel. Notice chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, let's go up here and let me just show you this, this pattern that, that he has been using. Verse, Like chapter 1, verse 6. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke its punishment. And then verse 9. For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Verse 11, For three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Verse 13, For three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. So you have this um, staccato kind of phrase, or this repeated phrase that that keeps coming back, and then you have the same thing in chapter 2, verse 1 for Moab. And so, again, uh, the people of Israel are just loving it. They, they think they need to be judged. But then the focus comes in a little bit closer to home here in chapter 2, verse 4. For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. And um, so Israel's getting a little uh, sweaty here from thinking about the, the prospect of God turning his voice towards them. In fact, that's what he does in chapter 2, verse 6. Through the prophet Amos, he says, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. That's really the focus of this um, of this prophecy. It's about Israel, but he was setting him, he was setting them up to show them how wicked their sin was, and he draws the attention, the, the focus now into the nation, the southern uh, southern kingdom of Israel. Uh, excuse me, the northern kingdom of Israel. So let's skip down to chapter three, verse two. Um, uh, yeah, verse 2 says you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth therefore I, therefore I will punish you for all of your iniquities so Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations they were supposed to be a reflection of God's holiness they were supposed to display the glories of God but instead they behaved just as corruptly and immorally and sometimes worse And and what we hear what we learn here is that that God's choice of His people is not a blank check. 
So just because God has chosen us doesn't mean we can act however we want. So if you think about God's choice of you, the fact that He adopted you into His royal family, okay, that doesn't give you a blank check to just live however you want, right? If 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 a royal family took someone who was in utter poverty and actually was an enemy of the king and brought him to be a son of the king, we wouldn't expect him to just allow that son to live however he pleases. Instead, he has certain responsibilities. He's still his son, but he has responsibilities to obey to obey his father and to live according to his father's rules. And Israel was not doing that. And God's saying, listen, I still, you still are my chosen people. Uh, you still... I still have a future for you, but I expect you to live in a certain way. And so you need to live according to your calling. God's choice of us never leads to presumption, but rather great responsibility. So he says, even though I have chosen you, or maybe because I have chosen you, I will punish you. And this is the same thing that we saw in, in Leviticus. Remember Leviticus twenty twenty six. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. And then in 1 Peter 1, verse 15, we have a similar command for us as the church. 1 Peter 1, 15, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. And then later, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, so that... uh, you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, so that you would display His excellencies. You would display His greatness. You would bring praise to His name. So, we are chosen so that we will bring praise to God. Ephesians 1 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ And He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Alright, so God's choice does not free us up to do whatever we please. Instead, we have responsibility. And um, as as the New Testament teaches us, you know, judgment begins with the household of God. And so we shouldn't be surprised that God is is, um, critically watching us and and um, making sure that we are in line with his commands. All right. Any questions on that first part? Comments? All right, let's think about Israel's sin here in chapter 2. Let's see why this judgment here is promised. We can look at a number of texts here in Amos, um, but but chapter 2 really helps us to capture it the best. As I read these verses, verses six to eight, notice two things. First, the oppression of others to get rich, the, the oppression of others in order to get rich, and the oppression of those um, who do in order to strive to live upright lives. So look at verse six. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless and turn aside the way of the humble and a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. 
So you can see the oppression of, <coughs> of the godly. You see it again in verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So what's, what's so um, bad about the Nazarites drinking wine? And the answer is not because wine is inherently sinful. Okay, what was the bad part about that? Right. So they're actually, they're actually compelling them in some kind of forceful way to go against the vow that they had made to God. Um, so it would be like maybe um, someone giving counsel to a person, to a couple who's married, saying, you need to be, you know, you, you need to divorce this person for unbiblical reasons. Well, um, they're actually telling them to go against the very vow that they had made. You can read about the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. So they have little regard for the Word of God. and They, they want the prophets to shut up, verse 12, right? The, the prophets are wanting to speak and say, no, you're not going to prophesy. We don't want to hear what you have to say. <clears throat> and uh, Jesus will do this to his enemies, Matthew 25. His judgment of mankind will be based on how they responded to his word, how they treated people, right? Um, for those of you who have given a, um, how does he say it? Um, Inasmuch as you did to the least of my brethren, so you did to me. And and the worst that you've done to them, uh, so you've done to me. So if you're mistreating the least of, of Jesus' um, disciples, then you are mistreated, mistreating him. That is, that those who truly do have faith, they actually believe the words of the Scripture and they respond in obedience. And so um, Jesus is really just preaching the same message that Amos is preaching, that that sin demands judgment and we need to repent of our sins and, and um, follow after the, the commandments of God. In chapters 5 and 6, we see the call to repent. Um, Amos is not only about ridiculing and condemning the people. He's also giving them an opportunity for hope, and that is through their repentance. Look at chapter 5, verse 4, or chapter 5, verse 14. <clears throat> Would someone read verses 14 and 15? Seek good and not evil. So it's not all misery and, and destruction. He's saying, listen, you, you have an opportunity to change. This, um, whenever you have this, this great amount of judgment that's promised, um, followed by a glimmer of hope, it always reminds me of Psalm 2, where you have all these nations rising up together, kind of like in a huge coalition against the God of the universe. And God kind of just sits in, heavens, in the heavens and laughs at them. Uh, they're trying to overthrow him and defy him. And God says that, that you must obey my son. They still reject him. And then later on in the text, you would expect God to just come down in judgment. But then at the end of Psalm 2, like in verse 10, it says, now turn and repent. So all you nations who are actually rising up, I'm actually giving you an opportunity to repent. The story of Revelation is very similar. That you have these great judgments kind of like... Um, 
plague-like judgments that happened in Egypt are going to happen during the end times. And they just come one right after another, just devastating the earth. And you would expect God to say, listen, it's over for all of you. But, but even there, he gives opportunity to repent. And the sad part is that a number of those people, um, the majority of those people, are kind of raising their fists in the face of God, even as they know that this is coming from God, that this is actual judgment because of their sin. They love their sin, and they hate to have to follow after God so much that they continue on in their sin, despite the clear signs, right? This is what the Jews have been asking for all this time. Give me a sign. God gives some great signs of judgment that he is the king of kings and that he must be worshipped, and they still do not repent. But this is the nature of our God. He is slow to anger. He takes his time. He's not. He doesn't lash out right away at the first sign of sin. He, he, his, his judgment and his, his anger burns slowly, um, but, but it, does all, it is always burning. And if we don't turn and repent, there will be a, a, rec- a day of reckoning, uh, whether here on this earth or in heaven or, or, or say, in the next life or both. Let's uh, look at verse 21, chapter 5, verse 21. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I, I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take, take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the song sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So here you can see in this verse kind of maybe a, a summary of all of Amos' prophecy, that there is both judgment there. God's, he is just disgusted by their external platitudes. He wants to see genuine um, worship. And so there's, there's a, a hint of judgment there, but then there's also that, that message of mercy there. In verse 24 sh- shows God's, God is both just and right, and that he offers repentance. The rest of the book, um, chapter 7 through 9, contains five visions. And um, we'll just look at the first vision. Uh, we'll just look at one of them, I should say. Last week we talked about this pattern earlier today as well. We had the sin, judgment, and then mercy, or if you want a more full um, explanation, sin, accusation against the sin, judgment, call to repentance, and then mercy. And um, so we'll see something similar here in chapter 9. So turn to chapter 9, verse 11. Verse 11. And would someone read verses 11 and 12? raise up the fallen booth or the fallen tent of David. Um, so most of what we've seen all the way up to chapter 9, verse 10 is doom and gloom. Obviously, we've already seen some signs of mercy and, and hope. Um, but here in verse 11 is a huge uh, reminder of a promise that God is going to resurrect David fall, David's fallen booth. Okay, the, 
remember the Feast of Booths that they would celebrate, which was after um, after they had come out of Egypt, they had lived in booths or tents. So they call that the Feast of Booths, just another way to say tents. So what it's talking about is David's tent. So what would, it, what would David's fallen tent be? What would his fallen booth be? Any ideas? All right, so, so you have, remember, David said, I'm going to build a house for you, God. And God says, no, I'm, you're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. That is a line, a, 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 a line that's going to continue on. And it seems like this fallen tent has something to do with the exile, where it was kind of hanging by a thread. There's no king on the throne. They're all away in Babylon. And it doesn't seem like there's, that this uh, kingdom is ever going to be restored Again, And so it seems like what Amos is saying here is that after all this coming judgment that's going to come on you, Israel, God's not going to forget His promise about David and the tent that He was going to make for him or that He promised to make and that would continue on forever. That this tent is going to be rebuilt. And it's going to be rebuilt by people from all the nations. Look at... um, uh, yeah, let's look at verse 13. Well, let's look at verse 12 again. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. So there you see um, that this is something that's going to be worldwide. It's, and for the Jew who's reading this, they probably didn't understand what we now see, that that actually included the Gentiles. Um, but, but verse 13 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes who sows seed when the mountains will drip with sweet wine. It's talking about the millennial kingdom and the, the restoration of God's intended um, beauty in the, in the world and, and, and operation. Um, and then verse 14, Also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. So there again it points to the idea that, that this did have something to do with Israel being in bondage. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. And they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make garden and eat their fruit. And I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from the land which I have given them. So what we're talking about there in the last verses of Amos is that God is going to fulfill that promise that He had made to to Israel, that through them all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And James, in Acts chapter 15, verses 15 to 18, we don't have time to turn there, um, I have that for you on your handout, so it would be good for you to look that up sometime. But there he's actually quoting from Amos 9, and what he's saying is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this prophecy is being fulfilled, that that David's tent, his house, is actually being rebuilt. And the way that it's um, going to come to its fulfillment, ultimately, is when the Gentiles come in to this family of people who are part of of God, and they're part of God's family. And obviously that's... That, that's kind of um, kind of got the snowball effect that's happened since the time of Christ's death where the Gentiles are being included into the church and there's going to be um, uh, just heaven is going to be full of Gentiles uh, as well as Jews. All right. Um, well, we need to get to the video. Do you have any questions before we do? All right. The book of the prophet Amos 
famous was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer who lived right near the border between northern Israel and southern Judah. Now, the north had seized its independence about 150 years earlier. Remember Christian Bethlehem? And it was currently being ruled by Jeroboam, such a successful military He won lots of battles and new territory for Israel. He generated lots of wealth. But in the eyes of the prophet, he was one of the worst kings ever. His wealth was led to Africa, and he allowed idol worship for the gods of which in turn led to injustice and the neglect of the church. And it got to the point where Amos couldn't take it anymore. He sent Scott Collinson to go trek up north to Bethel, an important city that had a large temple, and start announcing God's word to the people. And this book is a collection of his sermons and poems and visions uttered over the years. They were compiled later to give God's people a sense of his divine message to the northern kingdom, and it's a message we still need to do. The book has a fairly clear design. Chapters 1 and 2 are a series of messages to the nation and Israel. And chapters 3 and 6 are a collection of poems that express Amos' message to the people of Israel and the Chapters 7 through 9 contain a series of visions that Amos experienced that depict God's coming judgment on Israel. Let's just dive in. So the book opens with a series of short poems that accuse all of Israel's neighbors of violence and injustice. And this is kind of odd because the book's opening line that Amos was going to speak against Israel. So watch how this works. As Amos is naming all of these neighboring nations, you can go look at a map and see that he's creating a circle. And when he's done, Israel lies right in the center, like a target in the process. And on Israel, Amos unleashes a poetic accusation that's three times longer and more intense than any of these others. He accuses Israel's wealthy of ignoring the poor and allowing grave injustice specifically by allowing the poor to be sold into death sentences and then going on to deny any of these people legal representation. And this, Amos asked, is this the family that was once denied justice and enslaved in Egypt? The family that God rescued from oppression and slavery? The party's over, Amos says. God is done for the And so the opening of the next section is why. God says, I chose you, Israel, from among all the families of the earth. Is an allusion to Genesis 12, how God has called the family of Abraham to become God's blessing to all of the world. And so then God says, So this is why I will punish you for all of your sins. Israel had a great calling, which came with great responsibility, and so their sin and rebellion bring great responsibility. Now this section brings together a lot of Amos' poems, and you'll see a few key themes repeated over and over. So first, he's constantly exposing the religious hypocrisy of Israel's wealth and And he describes how they faithfully attend the religious gatherings, giving offerings and sacrifices, all the while neglecting the poor and ignoring the justice. And Amos says it's all a shame. The God actually hates their worship because it's totally disconnected from how they treat people. God says a real relationship with him will transform a person's relationship. And so Amos' call to true worship is to let justice flow like a river and righteousness like a never failing Now these two words, they're super important for Amos and actually all of the prophets. The righteousness, which in Hebrew tzedakah, refers to a standard of right, equitable relationship between people no matter their social difference. And justice, which in Hebrew mishkat, refers to concrete actions that you take to correct injustice and create righteousness. But the both of these are to permeate the life of God's covenant people like a rushing stream filled with rivals of us. 
The next theme is Amos' repeated accusations of Israel's idolatry. But remember, when the northern kingdom broke away from southern Judah, their king built two new temples to rival Solomon's in Jerusalem, and he placed the golden calf in each, remember 1 Kings chapter 12. Since then, Israel has only accumulated more idols, worshipping the gods of sex and weather and war. And in the prophet's view, the worship of these gods always led to the because these gods don't require the same degree of justice and righteousness as the God of Israel, not to mention that these gods were immoral themselves, not the God of Israel who did them. So he can say in one place, seek me that you may live. And then right after that, say to Israel, seek good, not evil, that you may live. So true worship of the Creator God of Israel is synonymous with doing good, with generosity, and with justice. And so the final theme in this chapter is that because Israel and its king have rejected Canaan and the other prophets, God will send the day of the Lord. This is a great and terrible act of justice. Specifically, Amos predicts that powerful nations will come, conquer, and decimate their cities, and take the people away into exile. And we know these predictions seem true. Some 40 years later, the Assyrian Empire swooped in and did exactly what Amos expressed. The book closes with a series of visions symbolic depictions of the coming day of the Lord. So he sees Israel devastated by a locust field, and then by a scorching fire, and then they're being swallowed up like overripe fruit. And in the final vision, in the sees God violently striking the pillars of Israel's great idol temple at Bethel, and the whole building crumbling down. It's the image of God's justice from the leaders and the gods of Israel. Their end is finally come. But then, all of a sudden, All right, Obadiah comes next, and it's the shortest of the prophets, just one chapter. Um, like Joel, um, there are no kings mentioned, so it's hard to know exact exactly the date. But um, put there for your hand, on your handout there around 845 B.C. is most most likely. Um, <coughs> he's unique because. Uh, He's addressing neither the northern nor the southern kingdom. Instead, he's directly um, he, he's directed entirely towards the Gentile nation of Edom. 
Edom is significant because of his, its relationship with Israel. And so, um, anyone know where Israel and Edom come from? Esau and Jacob, exactly. So, Edom is just another way to say Esau. It just means red. And um, so, from Israel, from Jacob comes Israel, from Esau comes Edom. And this war between these two brothers goes on for generations. It, it, they remember the stories and they continue the, the, the hate towards one another. And um, God is going to come and rule in judgment uh, over Edom. And He's also going to bless those who, who obey Him. Um, well, there's a long history between Edom and Israel that we don't have time to go into. But, but one of the times when, um, when Israel was coming out of the wilderness and they were getting ready to go into the promised land, they were trying to pass through Edom and, and the, the kings would not let them. And so they had to go around, and, and actually that's going to be mentioned here in Obadiah. So look at chapter 1, verse 2. Verse 2 reads, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. So here, Edom is pictured as this kind of ideal situation set up on a rock. They were on a kind of a fortress kind of setting, the ideal uh, topographical location that you would want, geographical location you would want for uh, a city in order to be protected. Uh, people would have to climb up to you, and then you obviously have walls. They would have to get past after that. And God says in verse 4, I'm going to bring you down. Although you're so lofty and, and nobody can bring you down, you say, I will bring you down. Verse 10, Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots on Jerusalem, or for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. So here's an example of your negligence. In that case, Israel's being looted and, and uh, destroyed and Edom's just kind of watching there. They, they could have come down and helped, but there on the on their kind of perched habitat, they, they look down and do nothing. And God's saying that's a form of mistreatment. That's a form of negligence that I'm going to hold you to. Verse 15, uh, The day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. So even though they may not experience God's judgment in this lifetime, God's saying the day of the Lord's coming when you will experience judgment and it will be obvious that, that, um, that it is me that it is I that is bringing this judgment. Verse 17, But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. So God's saying it is going to be a day of judgment, the day of the Lord. Absolutely. I'm going to judge all the nations for all their sin. They're going to have to rec- uh, there's going to have to be a reckoning for their sin. But there's also going to be blessing for those who, who trusted in me. And uh, just commend to you Second Thessalonians 1, 4-10 where God talks about the day, of, or Paul there talks about the day of the Lord and um, God's promise of judgment on, on the people. And what the point there is that even though there is judgment coming, we want judgment to come now. As Christians, we have enemies, that is people who, who betray us and people who, who um, persecute us in whatever the case. 
And God's saying, you may want judgment to come now, but it's not coming now. It, it, not necessarily. It, it, it will come later, and you need to be confident in that. Jesus said in John 15 that if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me first. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they also will persecute you. So we should expect that we are going to live as sheep among wolves. It's not always going to be pretty as we go through the, the, um, the course of life as people who follow God. In fact, our responsibility is not to hate them in return or to try to bring judgment upon them and certainly not to bring vengeance upon them, but rather, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 44, I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, act like your Father acts towards those who hate Him. He, he treats them with care and, and love and he, ultimately the best expression of His love was when He sent Christ to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And even Jesus, as He's being killed on the cross in Luke 23, says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. What they do. Alright, next week we'll look at Jonah and Micah. But before that, let's uh, take a look at this last video here.